This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Once again, the hot question of the day is COVID-19 related. So here's what we're asking you today. Many British Columbians are perhaps a few days into their self-isolation at home. It can be tough. So what are you doing to pass the time? We've put a few options out there. You can vote for spring cleaning. Are you cooking, baking? Are you streaming shows and movies or something else completely? You can vote on Twitter at Jill Reports at CKNW. Let me know what you think. And if you have a better idea, maybe an idea you would like to share with our listeners, then give the Buzzline a call. Cast your ballot there and uh, let us know how you are passing the time. 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. Would love to hear from you. A few people already have some suggestions that they've been sending along uh, on Twitter. Uh, This person tweeted, all of the above, also working in the garden and included three sunflower emojis, which is nice for this time of year. Uh, This person says they are reading and exercising and emphasize they are doing both of those activities alone. I had another question about uh, somebody asks, what do you do about clueless people and elevators? Saying I had to take one to the 11th floor yesterday as I waited. Four other people came for the same car. Instead, I walked up 11 flights of stairs. Yeah, I was a similar situation. I don't get into an elevator these days if there's more than one other person in that elevator. But you can vote on Twitter. We'll share some of those responses throughout the show. As you know, we had first the public health emergency declared, then a state of emergency in BC. But what exactly does that mean? We know it gives better powers, more powers to the health authority, as well as the provincial government. But what is the end goal and what will actually be put into place? Let's bring in Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. He is on the line with us. Keith, hi to you. Hi, Jill. Uh, we, a lot of uh, emergency states uh, of emergencies being announced. We know that it gives government these wide sweeping powers. What has actually changed, or, or what do you see actually happening? Well, I mean, the biggest change we've seen was uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry's order, public order under the Public Health Act, uh, to require bars and clubs to, to close. So that's a good example of the sweeping powers that can occur in an emergency situation, particularly on the public health side. Uh, and we're going to see more uh, orders from her over time, although yesterday she said she regards public orders as a last resort. She's really looking for people to volunteer uh, their changes in behavior. Mike Farnworth declared a province-wide emergency under the Emergency Pro- uh, Programs Act yesterday, which is a bit different. I, th- I think the best way to look at it is Farnworth is more responsible for the physical infrastructure of the province, moving things around, ensuring goods are moving through the, ch- the supply chain. Um, he has the power to ration food. He can set prices for things. Bonnie Henry is more on purely on the public health side trying to stem the spread of a particular disease. And to do that, it's more about people and curbing people's behavior, uh, access to facilities where the d- disease could spread. So there, there are two distinct uh, you know, declarations of emergency, but they work in tandem together. And Mike Farmer, really, he told me it was basically an extension of what Bonnie Henry had earlier uh, de- declared, but it does give both Farnworth and Dr. Henry considerable arbitrary and broadly defined powers to do pretty well anything they think is necessary to stop the spread of this disease. 
Uh, and you mentioned bars and restaurants and those places where people are often very close together when gathering. Uh, getting a lot of questions and even seeing, I think, uh, on a couple of places on Vancouver Island in transit, uh, they're no longer collecting fares and telling people to exit and enter the buses from the rear doors. Uh, I'm getting a ton of questions from people saying, why are people even still allowed to, to be on transit if that's going to be an area where there's very likely going to be people close together? Is that something with that? Do you think that would be Bonnie Henry or Mike? Farnworth as far as if anything changes there? I think that would be Bonnie Henry and that could, I actually asked Bonnie Henry that yesterday. What, what are you talking about about transit? Because she, she did in a briefing talk about how people should sit far apart on a bus and we've all been on buses that are <laughs> less than far apart. You're right up against someone. Anecdotally, the evidence out there is there's transit use is down uh, in all jurisdictions as people again are taking, <clears throat> taking it upon themselves to change their behavior, but she she did say, for example, she is in discussion with TransLink to potentially come in with new regulations that would limit the number of people uh, on a on a bus or a SkyTrain car. She also said that trans, public transit remains an essential service for many, and essential services are are deemed to be you know separate from a lot of other services. Bars and clubs are not considered essential services, but public transit is. And but you have to find a way to curb. The, the population on a public transit system. And that's what I think talks are underway right now uh, between Dr. Henry's office and TransLink and other uh, BC Transit offices. And daycare as well. I know health officials yeah. have been questioned about that and the same answer. It's an essential service right now and it's, it's balancing how do you keep things going. A lot of first responders and essential workers have kids that if without the daycares, uh, it would be extremely difficult. Exactly, and it's 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 really a ba- it's partly a balancing act. I think Dr. Henry's trying to achieve here, and also hoping that some of the problems take care of themselves. In that uh, people are staying home, okay. So now you can look after your kids if you're staying home, and so the the, the population at daycares and 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 childcare centers and, and situations will by themselves decrease, and therefore the problem will decrease in terms of of infection or contamination just because the numbers are dropping on their own without any intervention from Dr. Henry or that's not something Mike Farnworth would would be dealing with but uh, it's sort of as the population changes its behavior the risk of infection decreases or spread of the disease decreases because there's less people in a particular area than there was before you know say a month ago. Absolutely. Uh, we we heard from, you touched on this uh, from a provincial point of view. This idea of the panic buying and rationing, if it gets to that, uh, the mayor of Vancouver talked about that yesterday. Actually, sounded uh, kind of annoyed that people were still doing that. Uh, is that something that? Uh, how would that play out? Do you think if they got to the point where the government? did have to start rationing or start uh, saying you could only buy so much of this and so much of this? Well, they could uh, issue an order of uh, placing limits on how much you can purchase of of a particular product. Um, We haven't seen that before. So many of the things that is occurring, Jill, right now is completely uncharted territory. Um, like we, we've had provincial emergencies declared before with the wildfires uh, in 2017 and 2018, but that was in a very confined area, uh, rural area, where it was fairly easy to sort of um, dictate what could happen and what couldn't happen in a small space. This is a province-wide uh, emergency, and both from Bunny Henry and Mike Farmer, that is also in major urban areas, and we haven't seen that before. Um, so, it's, but I think when you think of it, a cabinet order could come out from Mike Palmer that says no person in British Columbia can purchase more than you know X number of X, and that would be it. And it would be up to stores or 
where you buy your purchases to actually police that. Um, and I don't think you'd see the police running around trying to enforce some of these orders on a 24-7 basis. It would be up to the stores. But we're already seeing some stores stepping forward and saying, no, you can't buy more than two of this or, or three of this. So, again, at the beginning of the outbreak, nobody was self-policing or checking on things. Now I think you've seen a radical shift in behavior from individuals and from commercial establishments to deal with this this crisis. It's still, some of the hoarding and stockpiling is clearly still going on, but I think people are now getting embarrassed because of the public shaming that's associated with this. And that's why I think you're seeing lots of it. I toured some Victoria um, grocery stores last night, just as a bit of research, and found that they were in much better shape than they were last week in terms of goods on the shelves. So oh. I think that, that stockpiling may be, uh, may be decreasing. But who knows? If this thing keeps going, we just don't want public panic to take hold there. And that's a big reason why I think you see Bonnie Henry's daily briefings where she's so reassuring and calm. And I think people should be like her. Absolutely. Uh, what do you think we're going to hear next? I know we have the daily briefings at 3 p.m. Uh, do you anticipate are we going to hear an update as well from Mike Farnworth or what's next from government? I don't think we'll hear an update from Farnworth until Monday when the legislature uh, reconvenes for one day, which is an extraordinary situation. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Nix will provide their update at 3 o'clock today. I expect the, the number of cases will increase inevitably, double digits again, undoubtedly. The numbers I'm keeping my eye on, Jill, are not the number of cases that are reported. It's the number of people in hospitals and number of people in, uh, in ICUs. And those are the most troubling um, statistics because they're the serious cases. Everybody else is usually described as being at home, and monitoring their, their stable conditions. So keep an eye on the hospital numbers and the ICU numbers today going forward. That's going to tell the story. I don't anticipate Dr. Henry to invoke impose another public health order today. She signaled yesterday she doesn't want to do stuff like that. She wants to see people, evidence that people are volunteering a change of behavior. And as long as she's comfortable with what she's seen, I don't think we're going to see more uh, public orders. And as long as restaurants continue to be only takeout or delivery, I don't think she'll impose an order closing them, but um, she does have enormous powers. So we've got to keep that in mind. Change your behavior for the good of everyone. Otherwise, your behavior will be changed for you. Mm-hmm, absolutely. All right, Keith, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Anytime, Jill. Take care. Well, we went from probably not using the phrase social distancing at all to hearing it and perhaps even saying it every single day. So what exactly does it mean and why is it so important as we fight the spread of COVID-19? Well, let's bring on Dr. Christopher Carlston, physician, professor and head of respiratory medicine at the Department of Medicine at UBC. He's joining us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Uh, You're welcome. Hi there. Well, talk a bit if you can. How would you define social distancing? Good question, and it, it seems to be changing uh, a bit all, over time. But really, it's keeping a reasonable distance between yourself and anyone perhaps outside of your family, the people that you essentially need to spend uh, time with on a regular basis, except in the cases where it's really necessary for what we call essential services. All right. So if you're going about your, your daily life and if you're somebody that uh, you're not self-isolating, you're still outside or out and about, uh, we're hearing this one meter to two meters. Is that a safe distance to stay away from people? Yeah, I think two meters if you can, because really the more distance, the better. And I just want people to understand why that is, because it's, it's not really something um, that we, we made up or that we're recommending to make people's lives difficult. But 
this virus, the COVID-19 virus, is sped, excuse me, spread by droplet. And what, what droplet means is it's basically a, a small uh, liquid that, that comes out of, of the mouth, essentially. And those droplets will fall quickly uh, to the ground, thankfully. It's not uh, what we call airborne. Airborne would be something that remains suspended for long periods of time in the air. And thankfully, it's not like that. Uh, but keeping this distance, and again, two meters is reasonable, uh, should protect people because those droplets generally won't pa- uh, excuse me won't travel two meters in distance. And that make that makes sense. Is it different though because we're still getting the message to get outside, get fresh air, uh, make sure you may take a walk or, or do that if you can. So I've been seeing though people say on the seawall that are quite close together, whether it's friends talking or even people jogging and passing each other. Is it less likely that you would get infected in an outdoor situation like that as opposed to a confined space? Well, it is less likely in the sense that the confined, confined spaces have more surfaces. And so there's the, the transmission from someone coughing. Um, that, that's kind of what we're mainly alluding to here. But there's a, another very important transmission route, which is, is when the droplets fall and touch surfaces, they remain there. And it's actually uh, being shown uh, a, a bit concerningly that, that the virus can live on these surfaces for longer than we thought. So in the outdoor environment, you know, you're not generally, if a droplet, say, falls to the ground, you're not generally going to be touching the ground with your hands. There are issues with the shoes, and, 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 and we could get into that. But I wanted to get back to something you are saying briefly, Jill, because I think we're still seeing, although it is getting better day by day, we're still seeing people that it don't seem to either take seriously or respect or, or for reasons I don't understand, um, honor this 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 strong uh, uh, request, really, which practically should be mandatory. We don't quite have that power. But for people to truly keep that distance, um, and and I am concerned um, that I, as you, uh, still see people a bit too close together. And we, we, there's a municipality now, Port Coquitlam today has announced that they're closing down playgrounds because I think there's also some confusion there that daycares remain open, kids will want to go outside and play. Uh, is there a danger with kids playing together or if you take your kids to the park and they're playing with other kids? Well, there's some danger. I mean, we're, 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 uh, we're trying really hard to, to balance um, our education um, against any any. Risk that people would um, feel panic over this, but the the playground situation is again one that has a lot of surfaces. Um, so uh, touching those surfaces then could transmit to another individual. The other issue is that you know children, quite understandably, um, depending on their age, might have a harder time um, remembering and 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 being consistent with the need to stay separated. Uh, the other issue with children is that they generally don't get sick, uh, as in don't manifest uh, the, the, the virus in a way that makes them feel or look sick, but they can easily transmit it uh, to others that are more uh, susceptible. So these are the reasons that the playground setting, the daycare setting um, is a concern. Right. And also adults, I think you can be more careful about not touching your eye or touching your face, whereas kids are probably doing that uh, all the time. Um, I'm also getting questions about people who are arriving from overseas that are going into self-isolation on how they get home from the airport. If somebody gives them a ride, does that person then have to self-isolate or is that person in danger or in danger of catching the virus as well? 
Well, so a couple different questions there. One, one, does that person have to self-isolate? For example, the person who's driving home, someone who's arriving uh, from another country. No, we don't think they do so long as that uh, person arriving is, is not sick. Now, none of these, none of these um, if you will, protocols or algorithms are perfect. They're all based on what we think is the most reasonable balance of risks and benefits. Um, and, and we're really just trying to do our best with, with the evidence we have. Um, that, that's probably the best advice for people picking up uh, loved ones at the airport. So even if that loved one has to isolate because they've been overseas, as long as they're not showing signs of sickness, the person giving them the ride should be fine to continue on their daily life? That's the current recommendation. All right. Uh, what are you uh, recommending then? Like you said, not everybody is taking this as seriously as they should. We're still seeing people getting into elevators, getting into to close spaces. So what would be the number one thing you would like to see people doing right now? I'd like people to think really carefully about the idea of what's essential and be very open and humble about the idea of essential activity. And I think when most people think carefully about it, they realize that they really can remain isolated more than they perhaps realize. I'm doing all this work, including this call, and and really a lot of work directly uh, in the hospital and our preparations and a number of other layers important to my job, including even patient care, essentially all by by my home, at my home, uh, by, by telephone and video conferencing. And it's not perfect, but I'm adapting and I'm learning to, to be, I think, still very effective. And I think people have to, to, to try to do the same. And, and what seems a, impossible or a huge inconvenience at first um, becomes easier with, 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 with fo- focusing on this and realizing that this is a limited period of time that we have to get through. But this distancing is incredibly important, probably the most important thing we can do. All right. We will leave it there. Dr. Carlston, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Jim. Well, as you know, we had the public state of emergency, the health state of emergency declared yesterday. Uh, The Premier also uh, talked about the state of emergency uh, and Mike Farnworth uh, as well, uh, giving the government some more powers as we deal with this COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, we also know that while bars and restaurants have been ordered uh, to close uh, to only takeout and delivery type options, there are other scenarios where people are close together. One of those being daycares, which has been deemed an essential service and many of the daycares in this province are still open. Well, the BC Child Care Owners Association is raising concerns about that. They have sent a letter to the Premier and Association Board Member Pamela Wahlberg joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about that. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, I'm happy to be here. Uh, what are your main concerns with what is happening right now with daycares in BC? Well, I think our main concerns is that with Dr. Henry declaring child care an essential service, um, we are kind of in unprecedented territory. Hospitals are essential services. They've been training. There's been preparations. They have directions. Schools are not an essential service, but they're still getting training and directions to prepare. We've been asking since February for a plan and directions from our licensing officers as well as from MCFD. And all we've received is essentially a Facebook post from Minister Chen last night. Um, our concerns are, you know, we can't access sanitizer and, and cleaners. And to be able to thoroughly clean a space twice a day um, the way that the government is suggesting that we do, we need supplies to be able to do that. 
Um, some centers don't have enough thermometers to be able to test temperatures as children are coming in every day. Um, it, the directions are just, if you're sick, you should stay home. But what defines sick and how do we make that decision and that call? And without giving, getting very clear direction and steps to be able to deliver our services safely, we're concerned about that safety isn't going to be able to be maintained. And what about workers as far as are, are the numbers of workers still at a level that, that uh, is uh, so, uh, making it able for these uh, childcare centres to continue operating? Absolutely not. Um, this came right after spring break started. Large amounts of people are on vacation with their families. They had left town. They're coming back home and they're in self-isolation. Anybody who's sick is in self-isolation. And then we have ECEs who have school-aged children who now won't have childcare for their own children and can't come in. Um, there was an ECE shortage to begin with. And now we're facing trying to operate within a pandemic where we need to ensure public health and safety. And we're expected to be able to socially distance with two-year-olds. Um, and we don't have enough workers to be able to do that. Well, and how do you even start d- d- doing that, socially distancing children? I, I have no idea. Developmentally, it's not appropriate or possible to accept children ages one to five to socially distance. Um, our facilities are set up so that we have legal space requirements. So we know that, you know, each child is given a floor space of three meters within a classroom. But toddlers and, and four-year-olds and five-year-olds, they move and they congregate in spaces and they use dress-up clothes together and they do rough and tumble play together and there's no developmental way that you could keep these children socially distanced. And uh, when we're talking about these centers, are we talking about the larger centers uh, or also is it is included in this uh, home-based centers that might only have a couple of kids or five kids? Is it all of those? I think that the same concerns apply to all centers. Certainly the larger centers introduce additional problems because larger centers often have more than 50 children. So when you figure out your 50 children plus the 10 or 15 staff required on top of that to provide care, we're going above the recommended gathering size. Um, and we've been given no direction about that. And then in the smaller centers, you have a smaller square footage space. And while certainly home centers are better situated to provide care for small groups, as soon as the educator has been exposed to a virus or comes down sick, that has to shut down. Um, it's just putting a burden onto the childcare system without any direction or steps as to how we're supposed to be delivering this essential service. We're not necessarily saying we should close. We absolutely defer to Dr. Henry as an expert in setting policy, but we need clear directions. And we've been asking since February. There's absolutely no reason that we shouldn't have had some sort of directions in place by now. Um, Last night, I was sent information about a program on the island that has closed down because of potential exposure. One of the parents was confirmed exposed to COVID, and so they've shut down the program. But the decision to shut down the program was made by the educators and parents. And public safety decisions shouldn't be put in the hands of citizens, it should be in our our medical professional hands and our elected officials. Right, because as it stands now, even though Dr. Bonnie Henry has said daycare is considered an essential service, if the individual centers took it upon themselves and decided they wanted to close, is anything stopping them? 
No, because while Dr. Henry has said we're essential service, she's also said that we have to maintain safe care and we have to maintain social distancing. Right. So uh, we're absolutely in a catch-22 where we don't know how to respond. And so individual operators are doing the best they can. And as days go on, more and more are closing. But also having no direction about funding. Are we going to be able to pay our leases? Are we going to be here when the pandemic ends? Because without support, we don't know what to do. Uh, you mentioned cleaning and the, the cleaning regime that's expected now. Uh, I'm assuming there is a pretty stringent cleaning regime already in place for daycare centers. Is it that you just can't access it or that stores are sold out to get the supplies that are needed? Well, it's a little bit of legislation and it's a little bit of materials. So each childcare center is free to set their own cleaning regime, more or less. The licensing regulations aren't very stringent, and it comes down onto the individual providers to ensure that that happens. Um, Vancouver Coastal Health did send out information a couple days ago saying that their expectation would be for programs to use an approved sanitizer twice a day. Um, but stores are sold out. I've heard of some programs that don't have toilet paper for more than just this week. You can imagine how much toilet paper you go through when the child's toilet training. Um, and now you have 25 children and you need to be able to access materials, but the stores are sold out. A lot of people have delivery services through Amazon or Costco and it's not available now. They just don't have the supplies in stock. What do you do next then? I know you've written this open letter to the province. It doesn't sound like you've heard back from them. We're, we're hearing from them that these issues will be addressed in the coming days. What do you guys do next? Well, in the meantime, we sit and we wait and we hope that children's health isn't put further at risk. Um, we don't seem to be a part of flattening the curve under this circumstance. I suppose we can continue to write letters, but individual operators are going to have to make decisions for public safety and health, even though we aren't the ones who are educated about public health and safety in a way that should be making these decisions. All right. Well, Pamela, we will leave it there and hopefully uh, get an update on this sooner rather than later. Thanks so much, though, for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, we've been talking a lot about COVID-19, the idea of social distancing. We were just talking with Claire Allen about a local business trying to do his part to not put customers in harm's way to save his staff, not lay his staff off. Unfortunately, seeing other businesses not following the rules that, yes, while they are changing day to day, we have all been told the need to social distance, the need to not congregate in busy areas. It's not easy. It's completely different from what we're used to. But as you know, health officials saying it is very, very important. So how are small business owners dealing with this new norm for the foreseeable future? This is what we're going to be doing. Well, Pascal Roy is the owner of Le Marche Saint-Georges in Vancouver. It's a small grocery store slash restaurant. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's often packed with people, often spilling onto the sidewalk out front. And he joins me now to talk about how he's coping with what is happening. Uh, Pascal, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Hi, Jill. Thank you. How are you? Uh, very well. How about yourself? Good. Uh, so how are you dealing with these new rules as far as social distancing and uh, dealing with this uh, COVID-19 outbreak? Well, I think it's, uh, it's extremely important, Jill, that uh, everybody follows the rules. We're pretty much uh, operating at uh, 5%. I'm, uh, I'm there now. There's no other staff. Uh, everybody's outside. And it's all to-go uh, products. And 
we we have to just to stay open. Uh, we have to become creative. So what we're starting to do is uh, delivery boxes of uh, uh, not necessarily essential goods, but uh, products like uh, uh, from local artists and local uh, producers from what we sell essentially at the Master Saint Georges. And so we can bring that to the people and who are more uh, isolated and they still want uh, to have uh, beautiful products and uh, interesting uh, food. So that, that's how, how we're going to move forward with this. Absolutely. So have you had to lay staff off or are they now doing the delivery side of things? Uh, it's, I leave my staff it's a, on a voluntary basis. So basically it's me and my manager. Everybody else uh, stays at home. So uh, it's a small cafe. So 10 staff basically are uh, not coming. Um, so, yeah. And it's, it's unclear how long this is going to happen. We know that it's going to be for the, for the foreseeable future. Uh, does it bring you any comfort to the announcements from federal government, from the provincial government, as far as relief for, or some kind of compensation for, for small business owners? Absolutely. It's not clear, though. Uh, I've looked into it. It's not clear how to get into it. Or, uh, and I, I think it's coming in April. Uh, I hope they'll make it easy. Um, it's a large, large amount. It's a large amount. So it's going to have a, a significant impact on, uh, on the Canadian economy, in my opinion. And, uh, and if you look at China, China in a three-month time, uh, they're doing already much better. So with this uh, influx of uh, money, and if we can do what the Chinese did in three months, and hopefully their numbers are right, um, I think we should recover from this. Uh, absolutely, and that's uh, that's definitely the goal, and why uh, we uh, we have these measures uh, in place. Uh, your business uh, is often such a hub, especially with the weather like we're having now. Even though it's not super super warm, it would be a place where people like to sit and gather. Are you hearing from the community as far as what people are still doing to check on their neighbors or to make sure uh, that people are still okay in that area? Uh, well, we we've uh, we're raising. Uh, uh, we're trying to create a, a place where people can drop off food for the food bank. Um, uh, we posted things uh, on, the, on the local uh, blog so that uh, people know we're here to help. And I hope other people do that as well. Like, this is a, those are defining uh, times, uh, Joe. So it's a time where you have to rise up, not, not uh, cower down and hoard toilet paper. It's time to... Uh, help the neighbor, make sure everybody's okay, especially the elderly, the people that are not mobile or who have uh, uh, different uh, difficulties. And we're certainly trying to do this here uh, at the National St. George. And you mentioned the local suppliers. And are you still able to do that? Because I think it's it's a great idea what you've done, gone from bringing people or people coming to the store and, and being in a scenario where they would likely be too close together uh, to delivering it and putting these boxes out there. Uh, did you get the sense from the suppliers that they are going to be able to continue with that supply and continue doing that throughout uh, however Absolutely. long? Jill, there's no food shortage in Canada. We have a lot, a lot of, there's no supply problem. So that's the easy part. Uh, now it's to change the business model so people understand they can order a box and we'll deliver it. 
uh, now it's a, it's a whole different ball game. But we have to be creative. And if we can get together all the small, because it's the small businesses that are, are suffering the most, right? If you're on salary, you know, it's, it's hard, but basically you're on paid vacation. Um, so the small businesses, uh, the, the, the individual, the salaried people, those are the people who are struggling. And if we can get together and, and pool our resources, we can, uh, uh, we can get through this. Absolutely. Are you hearing from other businesses or other small business owners uh, that have also found uh, creative ways to try and deal with this? Not yet. Like we're 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 in the midst of it. So uh, this is a new project that uh, I started this morning, and uh, the response from the suppliers has has been great. And I'm talking small small businesses, like small like small flower shops, uh, ceramics people, artists. And what we want to do is, you know, quarantine in style, Jill. <laughs> It's not because you're quarantined or that you're, you're isolated or that you can't leave your house. That You know, you can have a good chocolate or good art, uh, for that matter, or a flower, a flower bouquet or something like that. So we're trying to kind of bring a bit of joy uh, in these uh, difficult times. And I think a lot of people would be very appreciative of that because you could have gone the other way, knowing that there is going to be some compensation down the road. Uh, you could uh, have easily that. shut the doors. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. We, we're going to get through this. And um, Jill, we are Canadian, not can't Canadian. We are going to get through this. <laughs> All right. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you've put some information on your website if people want to learn more. Is that the best thing for people to do if they're interested in... Actually, there's nothing yet. I'm okay. going to work on that. Right now, like, I'm, uh, I'm making coffee and uh, croissant, <laughs> and I'm like... A, I'm trying to do it as much as I can all at once. I'm going to try to do that uh, this afternoon, put some information uh, for the boxes. And, you know, right now I'm calling them artisan boxes, or some, it'll be some, something like that, where if you want to encourage uh, local suppliers, local, local makers, we'll have different boxes from... And there's going to be food in there, like chocolate, uh, salamis, this kind of even uh, bread, but also maybe a piece of art, uh, a piece of ceramics, uh, some flowers, you know, we'll we'll see. It's in the process. All right. Well, I will look for that uh, later on on the website today for sure. Pascal, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Claire Newell, the president of Travel Best Bets. She joins us once again. Claire, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, no, my pleasure, Jill. Today is a really important message to get across to Canadians, and I know that Justin Trudeau made that today, that really urging Canadians, it is now kind of critical time to get them back. Otherwise, they could potentially be trapped by the lack of flights, and it came down today that Air Canada, they are cutting drastically as of April 1st until at least April 30th. So much so, Jill that the international network is going from 101 airports to six. Those six will be London, Paris, Frankfurt, Delhi, Tokyo, and Hong Kong. And the transborder to the U.S. Uh, from Canada going from 56, uh, sorry, 53 airports to 13 in only 11 cities. So you'll have two airports in New York and two in Washington, D.C., 
Um, domestically, it's not quite as bad. Uh, from 62 airports to 40. Again, this is for April 1st to 30th. Um, so Air Canada is at least serving all provinces and territories, but reducing the domestic network for sure. And all of this, though, Jill, subject to further reductions based on demand or government edict. Absolutely. So what does someone do? What are you because I'm sure you're getting calls from people who now are in places they're not they're not even going to have a flight that they could try and get on. Are they do they have to now go to the cities that have the airports that are still having the flights or what do they do? Yeah, that's right. So we um, I have to say I had a big release uh as of yesterday, we have all of our own clients rebooked. You know, the last 40 were, were handled, and they're certainly not coming back the way that they originally planned to. I mean, going, say, from, you know, somewhere in Spain or Portugal to London, Gatwick, then maybe an overnight hotel and then leaving out of Heathrow. And that's what it's going to be. Do not sit on hold. If you've got friends and loved ones overseas, do not tell them to go on hold with the airline. They need to get a hold of someone who knows the routes to get people back to to Canada with Canadian Airlines, because that's the only hope of them getting somewhere. Um, I do know that Air Canada is looking to help Canadians return return home by operating some, you know, just a limited number of charters from international destinations between that period. But they have to explore that with the government of Canada um, and how that's going to work and where they're going to go to. So they're certainly not going to send a plane for, you know, four people in some remote area. You really do have to get to at least cities where Air Canada flew or WestJet flu but at, at this stage of the game it's a it's very stressful and it's very confusing for people um and we just don't want people stuck and if they do get stuck they really need to know that hotels will likely close and mm-hmm. what that means is they've got to find another form of accommodation and that could depending on where they are jill it could be a vrbo or a Airbnb, those websites are going to be important for them to try and find accommodation that is safe where they can actually stay until, say, borders open, if, if they're stuck somewhere because borders, like no flights are leaving from where they are. It's just, you're right, so many different moving parts and concerns because I would imagine, too, the stress of that now finding accommodation. And at the same time, the whole reason that we're doing this is you got to be worried about if you get sick and if you are suddenly, even if there is a flight, if you leave it and that was to happen, you wouldn't get on the flight. That's right. That's, that is a, one thing that I'm hearing. The other I'm hearing is that many people's insurance policies are now saying that after the government of Canada issued the travel advisory, that the Canadians have 10 days after or a period that's reasonably necessary to either get home or risk traveling without access to insured medical care. So people need to look at their policies and how that's going to affect. Um, there is a piece of good news if you um, are you happen to have loved ones or family who are in a destination that Sunwing is offering flights, even if they're not Sunwing passengers, they are offering a number of flights, about 60 of them that are left free to get Canadians home. So you can go to their website, sunwing.ca, there's a link and you can pick the day and see where they're flying, you know, to and from. Um, if that can help some Canadians who, at this stage of the game, we just need to get them home. Our team is ready now. Our clients are all dealt with. 
now we want to help other people. Well, that's great. And that's got to be a relief for you. But like you said, there are still people uh, stranded. And that's so nice to see companies uh, doing things like that, because that's what people are going to remember as well, once we're on the other side of this thing. Um, So when you mentioned that too, uh, that people need to call, don't call and be put on hold. So just to, to reiterate again, and somebody, if someone's listening and they have a loved one who's still trying to get back to Canada, what what advice do they give that loved one? Right. They need to get that person in touch with a, 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 an experienced Canadian travel agent who knows the roots of how to get them back or where to give them the advice to where they should at least hunker down if they're, if they're stuck. And that's not calling your airline to see if you can get a refund and rebook a ticket. It's gone. P- it's gone past that, Jill. People now need to just get on any airline, deal with the, the, the paperwork later and the insurance don't call try and call your insurance company they're not travel agents who are going to know where to get them rooted through no absolutely and obviously not nearly as uh, urgent but for people that are still trying to cancel flights that had right. vacation booked are they still calling airlines what should they do yeah that's um again that's stressful and confusing for people many companies are relaxing their cancellation policies um the situation is changing really quickly though so you do need to go to the website for the most up-to-date information in some cases we're seeing it change on a daily basis we do have all of the links in one spot on travelbestbets.com we still haven't found anyone else that's doing it so you can go there there's a red button click it and it will show you know give you the information um in a one click to what it is whichever company it is you're looking for um most of them are now going to a future travel credit. And Jill, I can only imagine if they had to refund everybody now, they would all collapse. So this is something that is going to happen. They may extend it from, say, the, it has to be used up until the end of um, 2020 or within one year. Some now are giving it to the end of 2021 or 24 months. Um, but the majority of companies are doing that. They are not doing full refunds. So whomever you're booked with, unless it's maybe hotels, um, but this is, this is rapidly changing. All right. We will leave it there. Claire, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. A lot of information out there, and for many people, it can be information overload. So what is the best way to wade through everything? Let's bring in Wiley at the UBC School of Economics. Wiley is a professor there and joins us on the line. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, There can be a lot of information, certainly uh, with people on social media and going to various uh, sites to get that information. So how do you suggest uh, that people deal with what can be an overwhelming amount of information and in some cases, uh, information that's not even correct? Uh, So when we learn from networks, it's very easy to be misled by misinformation and false news. So in particular, there's this problem we call echo chambers. So if a lot of people are uh, connected in a circle, so the news travel back and forth in a loop. Because, for example, I hear from two of my friends or two of the sites I checked that reporting the same piece of news, but I didn't know that they come from the same source. As a result, I may believe there are two pieces of independent news and 
and gradually as news travel back and forth, I believe very strongly in it. So to prevent this kind of false news from, especially one piece of false news from reaching and influencing many people, we have to try to follow some personal, uh, personally we could follow some rule of thumb. For example, we discount the same information if it keeps reaching you because as time goes on, the probability it comes from the same source and has new, no new content just become higher and higher. Also, a uh, second point is that if we share information in social media, please post a link to the source. Uh, don't just copy and paste without attribution so that people can see that, oh, it comes from the same source, not the second one, not the third one, so that people can form their beliefs uh, properly. Uh, because I would imagine, too, people will seek out the information they want to hear or they will seek out, uh, they'll go to sources perhaps that they are comfortable going to or have gone to in the past. Absolutely. And this is where we have to be especially uh, careful. Slow and cautious learning from new information makes everybody better off. This is especially the case if we, I know that many of my friends are checking the same news site or hearing from the same group of, group of people. We have, to uh, we have to pay particular attention now to uh, believing every time we hear that some piece of news, now to believe it as new again. Right. And that's where we really get into that whole issue with an echo chamber and, uh, and things that just bounce back and forth and bounce around. Absolutely. So ideally, uh, we should, the information travels best in the social quilt. What we think about social quilt as a tree with many branches, and each leaf is an individual unit. It could be a family or, or could be a work unit, and we want to have total transparency with each other. For example, I just shared the news at the dinner table, and everybody get it. And outside these little units, where we share information openly, we don't have any circles that serve as this echo chamber that so that information goes back and forth. This is the best way for information to communicate in these difficult times. Hmm. Uh, and what about uh, things like, and, and again, the, on social media, there was uh, something being shared yesterday. It was uh, the president of the United States, and somebody did a bit of a reality check when he said, uh, yes, this is a pandemic. I've always said it was a pandemic. And they literally went back and found several different times, going back over the last two months, where he said the exact opposite, where he called it a hoax, where he uh, absolutely didn't call it a pandemic. Uh, what do you think about people sharing things like that? Because only a certain amount of people are actually going to see that. That's absolutely true. So while I'm not an expert on the fact-checking uh, business, but what I, what I think is that knowing, noting the source of information and always observe information from a centralized uh, source, for example, what the BC government is doing, giving info daily pr uh, press conference about new information is much more effective for people both to, uh, for all the people to get this information at the same time. And for if there are some fact-checking sources, they could check the development of the sources so that they can figure out if information changes, what is new information, and they can know exactly why information changed. Because it is different, too. And you mentioned the daily news conferences and the daily briefings that we are getting from politicians on different levels of government. Much different than, say, during an election campaign. You're constantly hearing from politicians everything that's said almost needs a fact check because if it's a campaign promise, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. We would hope that information that's being put out there about a pandemic would be the truth, wouldn't be something, at least from our leaders, our elected officials, that that would be true. 
Oh, absolutely. And that's indeed, we hope so that information come from this type of centralized fashion would be helpful. But we should never underestimate the power of misinformation. False news, for example, uh, a lot of the potential uh, misinformation or election promises or this kind of things prospers in networks with circles. They tr- not only they travel back and forth repeatedly, also when they get a head start, it's going to prosper, it's going to grow so fast, it's going to grow exponentially so that it's eventually if the government tries to combat this false information and for example, if you start late uh, and you give out uh, you know, true facts that's not going to be enough. So the government, this is one thing that if we want to combat false information, the government has to come out like a line. You go early and you go ferociously, both through official channels and in unofficial channels. Uh, and when you mentioned, too, if you are going to post something to make sure you post the source so people can see where it comes from, uh, what about something like, and unfortunately, while we're dealing with COVID-19, there are people who are posting and talking about these miracle cures or uh, medicines natural things that that can that can apparently cure it it's not real and even if you might link it to a website that is touting this uh, that doesn't that doesn't automatically make it legitimate uh, what about when you're linking it to something that's simply not true Ah, absolutely. So this goes back to my point that slow and cautious learning and transmission of information is really important. It's going to make everybody better off because we have to be slow and cautious, not in how, not only in how we interpret and read data, but also in how we transmit. For example, uh, this is especially the case when you say with this kind of website without official medical support or government backing, we have to be responsible both in for ourselves and we have to understand that once we put some information into, you know, for example, my Facebook post, that many people might be influenced. So we are doing this slow and cautious learning, not just for ourselves, but for everybody involved. All right. Uh, Good advice, especially in this time when a lot of us are so inundated with information from various sources. Uh, Wei Li, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. As you know, yesterday, the Vancouver mayor, Kennedy Stewart, announced a state of emergency that was put to a vote today and passed. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about what this means is Melissa DiGenova, a City of Vancouver councillor. Melissa, thanks for joining us. I know it's a busy day for you. Good afternoon. It is. So what exactly happened with this council meeting, the virtual meeting today? Well, today we had a meeting uh, and it was... It was a recommendation that uh, is not often seen at the City of Vancouver. And it was the council enact a bylaw to declare a state of emergency in Vancouver. And uh, in the report that we received from staff and in a public presentation, staff outlined that and answered council's questions. And moments ago, uh, council voted and unanimously supported uh, that recommendation to move forward. All right. And so what types of powers does this give or what, what do you anticipate? What will this change? Well, in the report, there's some very specific um, recommendations and, and also, it also outlines the Vancouver Charter, which is uh, a very important and key part of this. Uh, that being said, this is all about working with the provincial and federal governments and moving things forward uh, in a positive way to make sure that we, we do our part here at the City of Vancouver to flatten out the curve, to keep uh, the residents in the City of Vancouver safe, uh, to keep the public safe, and to make sure that we're off- 
offering the certainty to people uh, that they need. Um, I personally and some of the other council members uh, stated this in the meeting are hearing from people that have uh, anxiety. Uh, It's not just about going outside. It's about social distancing, uh, making sure that we're getting that information out, but that we're doing what we we need to do to make sure that everyone is participating in social distancing and listening to uh, to the recommendations that are coming out of the province and notably uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry about making sure that we're a meter uh, or more apart from people, but also we're seeing uh, people overbuying and purchasing, uh, you know, items in stores that perhaps uh, don't necessarily leave enough for other folks and those in need. Uh, that being said, uh, also listed in the recommendations uh, was a point about acquiring or using land or personal property uh, to prevent, respond to, or alleviate the effects of the emergency. Uh, I had people reach out to me that were quite concerned about this declaration um, of a state of local emergency in the city of Vancouver. And I want, I want to remind them that I think that it's important that we, uh, we plan, uh, we plan for for uh, every scenario and every situation. And I think that that's how we're going to make sure that there is the best uh, outcome there. And I'm very thankful for uh, for the mayor uh, and the actions he's taken, uh, as well as uh, my fellow councillors and uh, their participation in conversations. And uh, last but certainly not least, if anything, I have to thank them the most. It's uh, the staff and the first responders, um, our city of Vancouver staff who are coming to work to make sure that this city uh, stays operational and running um, for the people of Vancouver. So uh, they're leaving their families uh, amidst uh, this surreal situation. So that's really, uh, that that was what happened at our meeting today. And it took a few hours, but uh, Council asked some thoughtful questions surrounding that and uh, hoping to make sure that, that we're proactive in this and that we do flatten the curve uh, when it comes to COVID-19. Uh, I understand uh, the mayor talked a little bit about the fact that even though bars and restaurants had been ordered closed on St. Patrick's Day, there were at least 20 that were seen open. So does this uh, power now with the state of emergency, does that give the city more power to, to shut down restaurants if they are found to be violating the rules? Well, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing from our staff on, on what we can do, but I'm hoping that we won't be in that situation. I specifically asked a question if uh, if that information uh, was maybe uh, if there were miscommunications, not necessarily uh, on the on the side from the city of Vancouver, the province. It was very clear what the recommendations were, but I'd be interested to know um, if our staff had reached out to those twenty business. 20 or so restaurants and asked them if they understood the order and why they'd stayed open. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully um, hearing a more a clear response on that because I'd, I'd like to think that we can all find the good in each other right now and, and look at, at the fact that these are trying times and perhaps uh, those restaurants really did intend to close. As to what powers there are, I mean, there's also uh, the province has also declared a state of emergency. So uh, certainly the the provincial powers that are already moving forward uh, also may have more to do uh, with closures or uh, actions 
uh, if if people do not heed the warnings and orders that they're given by uh, by medical professionals who are overseeing this and making sure that everyone stays as well as possible through this crisis. Uh, a couple of things about space, and you touched on this. So this gives the city uh, the right to commandeer space or to do to do that if necessary. Uh, there was also the issue of evictions that was brought up, which might actually be provincial jurisdiction. But what was decided or what was the conversation about space and possible evictions? I think that it, it what I'm hearing from, uh, from council and uh, certainly heard this and listening to other council members' questions and answers from staff, uh, our most vulnerable residents, and some of them uh, are in the downtown east side, and even in uh, single-room occupancy uh, buildings, some share bathrooms. Uh, it doesn't necessarily offer them the distancing that they may need to, to fully participate and protect themselves and prevent uh, COVID-19 from spreading. So certainly I know that that's top of mind for a number of us. And, and I, I'm not sure that it's about approving something that there is a plan for at the, this very moment, but it's giving our staff those powers to be able to move forward quickly quickly, and a word that was used often today was in a nimble way. Uh, We have to expect that things can change overnight here as we see the numbers changing. And again, this is about doing our part in the city of Vancouver to make sure people are as safe as possible, that they have current and up-to-date information, and that we're making sure that they have access to what they need. And that includes space. So um, I'm confident that our staff uh, aren't taking this lightly either. And uh, they'll be doing as much work ahead of time as they can to provide information to the public. But again, this is about also offering that shelter uh, needed to uh, vulnerable people in hopes that we can prevent this uh, from spreading. But especially in, in communities such as the downtown east side where people are especially vulnerable. Absolutely. Uh, we only have a minute left. Uh, for people, are building permits and other city services going to continue? Well, we do have a, a council meeting and a committee meeting scheduled right now for March 31st and April 1st. And I have uh, suggested that some of our member motions, the motions put forward, uh, political motions uh, sometimes, as they're called, uh, that are put on the agenda by council members, uh, that we, we make considerations for what business we will be discussing at our council meetings. It's important that the city moves forward with uh, business that's important to, to the core services that we offer and the operations that people expect of us. And, and that during these trying times uh, can, can help to, uh, to sustain what we're doing here in the city. That being said, I'm looking forward to hearing back from our staff on, on how they set forward that agenda and what they seem to think is essential uh, moving forward. That may change in coming days. I'm not sure that what that will be at this moment. All right. So we will check back in for sure. Uh, Melissa DiGenova, thank you so much. Thank you. We have been talking a lot about uh, social distancing, staying at least a meter, preferably two meters away from people if you are out uh, walking around, getting some fresh air, which is still very, very important for people. Not possible if you are isolated, if you are in a position where you can't actually get out and enjoy that and take those precautions. Well, West Vancouver is now looking for some volunteers and has a very special way of dealing with this, or at least trying to deal with with a lot of vulnerable members of that community. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Jill Lawler, a community wellness manager at in West Vancouver. Jill, thank you so much for being with us. 
Oh, thank you, Jill. Pleased to be online. Uh, so what exactly are you looking for as far as trying to help seniors who are now dealing with this isolation? Our community is pulling together, especially for our seniors who are at the heart of this outbreak. We have developed the West Vancouver Seniors Helpline, which is available Monday to Thursday from 8 to 8, and as well on Friday from 8 to 6.30, Saturday and Sunday from 8 to 4.30, where we have trained staff that are there to support and connect and refer. We are calling all 4,000 members of our Seniors Activity Centre Um, And we are also calling all the members of the West Vancouver Community Centre that are over the age of 70. And through this, we are assessing their needs, providing information and friendly chats um, and giving them resources. And those resources include the new safe grocery hours, our pharmacy hours, open restaurants who provide takeout, our delivery. And one of the things that we discovered when making these phone calls initially was a need for technology. Some of our residents reply, rely on having public computers in order to stay connected with information and email. So we put out a call for volunteers or donations for technology, and we've received many of devices, and we were able to repurpose those devices to residents that no longer have access to computers or technology. One of our amazing community residents reached out to tell us and through their mobility for good, they are now donating devices to our seniors, which will allow our elders to stay connected with our West Vancouver Library providing tech support. That's uh, that's so great because that was one of the concerns when we were hearing about community centers and libraries and such closing down for the obvious reasons of, of trying to stem this and trying to stop the spread of this virus. But it does, we also, the flip side of that is it does leave people uh, like seniors that you're talking about who rely on these places uh, with, with no connection. Very much so. And this has allowed them to really stay connected with others. And our West Vancouver Library is right there, hand-in-hand, providing that phone service uh, to help them get started. Our West Vancouver Foundation has also moved very swiftly to respond by creating a new fund to support our frontline services responding to the coronavirus, which uh, we're encouraging people to give where they live Um, and and to donate, and those that can't, uh, we're asking them to volunteer. Because right now, many of our seniors who have been our staple volunteers are unable. And we're looking for healthy volunteers under the age of 70 uh, with a clean uh, criminal record check or police information check uh, to help support us. We are still assessing the needs in our community uh, by making all of those phone calls One of the services that we do have a need for now, uh, we are offering food service. We have uh, from the Seniors Activity Centre, we have takeout from 10 until 2, seven days a week, uh, but we're also needing help with the delivery of that for those that can't get out. And I would imagine too, like you said, volunteers have to have a clean criminal record or check and such, but also volunteering in a way with the pickup and deliveries, still maintaining that safe distance and making sure that everybody is doing what they can to stay healthy. Thank you very much for saying that. We are definitely taking all precautions to ensure that everyone who's involved is safe. We also have volunteers Uh, some of our senior volunteers that are able to call from home because they have current call lists and they're reaching out to connect to their different groups to make sure that everyone's safe um, and, again, has nourishment 
resources and supports. And if anyone's in need, they're connecting back with us and we are reaching out to the community to identify, share those needs so we can make sure that those services and supports are there for those that are isolated in their homes. And so the call for more volunteers as well, that's a lot of phone calls calling all, it was at 4,000 potentially vulnerable people that were members of the Seniors Activity Centre. It certainly is a number of phone calls. And what we're finding is we are finding people so appreciative of having an opportunity to connect, ask questions. When we're able to tell them about the safe grocery store hours or the pharmacy hours, they are tickled. Um, and just that opportunity to have a, a conversation with someone. We're also receiving phone calls through our helpline uh, from families that are overseas or out of town looking to find supports that they can provide to their parents uh, who may or may not necessarily be members of the Senior Activity Centre, but we're there to support our whole community regardless. All right. Uh, what else do you need, or is there anything else at this point you need as far as volunteers or members of the community? Well, we are continuing to stay connected. So if people have ideas or things or ways that they can support us to call our Seniors Helpline, which is 604-925-7280, to continue to provide those resources that they have been, which has been amazing. And if they're interested in volunteering or donating or being a part of that, again, call that helpline. And we are triaging all the resources. We're triaging our needs to make sure that we're able to connect those together. We're also continuing to offer some of our regular scheduled classes uh, through our Facebook, our video chat, some live stream. So if people are looking for a connection out there in the community, they need to reach out again to our helpline and we will get them connected. All right. And just to to make sure people understand, we're talking about uh, seniors who are isolated, not that they are sick, not that they have been forced to go into isolation, but seniors that uh, maybe have some mobility issues or just aren't able to get out and about. And uh, and that would normally maybe go to a library, uh, can't because the library is closed. Certainly. So our our elders that are, are 70, 75, 90, 95 years of age we're asking them right now to stay home. We want them to stay home so that they're safe. So these are healthy, overall, healthy uh, elders that are living in our community, but they don't have those resources. And our responsibility is to make sure that we keep them connected, keep those resources happening and those conversations happening. Those friendly phone calls are priceless right now. And giving people that connection and hope is part of our responsibility. All right. Uh, Great to hear uh, that this is happening and that so many people have already stepped up. We will leave it there. Jill, thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, usually when we talk about the BC Cancer Agency and its volunteer driver program, we're either talking about what a great job the drivers are doing, which they continue to do, or the need for more volunteers. But in light of what's happening with the COVID-19 virus, today it's a much different story. And George Garrett joins me on the line. If you have listened to this station for any length of time, you know George is a legendary reporter here. Also, a volunteer BC Cancer Driver Society. Uh, he is with the Cancer Driver Society. George, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Hi, Jill. So nice to be on. I was just thinking, you know, it was 64 years ago when I first went on CKNW, 1956. I know it was before you were born, of course. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> but uh, we have a, a very uh, sad situation right now in that 
with a heavy heart, we've had to discontinue our volunteer service to cancer patients. And if I may, I'd like to read a brief statement from our president, Bob Smith, which does explain uh, why this happened. Bob Smith says, by now, you are aware our decision to suspend service to our patients. This decision was made as a result of our discussion with senior leaders of the BC Cancer Agency on Monday. They made it clear that given the majority of our drivers are in a high-risk group over the age of 60, we should cease driving operations to avoid risk to both our drivers and the patients. And Bob says it is not a step that was taken lightly. The advice given by the BCCA, the Cancer Agency, was unequivocal. So we do have great concern for our patients, but we do know from the BCCA, the Cancer Agency, that they have a a transportation program in place, and all patients in need will contact their treatment center to determine how their continuum of care will proceed. So that's it for the official statement. There's no way you could put into words how our drivers feel and how I feel personally, and that goes for our dispatchers to everyone connected with the volunteer cancer drivers. We've worked so hard for the last four years you know, to build this up, but um, this, uh, everybody's been caught, of course, by this virus, and just like everyone else, we are affected. Absolutely. What will this mean, though, for the people that rely on these rides? Do you think, will this, this other uh, transportation option, will that be able to fill the gap? I think it'll be uh, rather difficult in that um, they they have a system that is operated by the cancer agency, and which I they believe I believe they'll be using three or four different methods of of getting people there, including handy dart and taxis and a professional nurses transport. But um, the situation, I think, it's not to the point of uh, where they will be triaging patients, nothing like that, but. Uh, the patients, the treatment will be uh, in and out as, as quickly as possible. And I know they will try hard to keep up the, as much treatment as possible. Because when we talk about this too, it's so much more than just a ride. The the people oh. have relationships with their drivers, they trust their drivers. Uh, but I would imagine too, and this was touched on in the statement, a lot of the drivers are retired and would also be very vulnerable to this. Yes, that's true, and that's really the reason why the cancer agency felt it was in the best interest of both the drivers and the patients that they discontinue driving. It's easier said than done, though, because, uh, as you said, the drivers do form a bond with the patients. They know them well. Sometimes they drive them many, many times. In fact, we have one patient we've driven over a 100 times over the past four years, And it's not uncommon, say, with radiation for uh, treatments to go for six weeks, and uh, a a patient and driver will be together for most of that time. Uh, We alternate drivers, but still, there's a lot of of, uh, comradeship and uh, compassion that develops between the driver and the patient. So we feel very badly about the situation, but it's affecting our society completely. Absolutely. And I, w- I realized too, not thinking about it really in such great detail before, but we're also talking about drivers that it's not just something they do now and then. Some of the drivers, I mean, driving up to, is it three people a day? Oh, yes. Uh, I guess the best example is uh, a member of our executive and uh, one of our original drivers, Larry Coleman. Uh, I got him on TV last year and he was not very happy about me <laughs> getting him on TV. Uh, but 
the, the statement he said at that time in response to a question was really quite important. The question was, why do you drive cancer patients? And his answer, because it's the right thing to do. And in fact, we have made a video of that done by one of our own videographers and drivers, Jim Morrison, who worked countless hours on getting it together. And that's the title of it, because it's the right thing to do. So you can pick it up uh, on YouTube, and I think you'll find it's a very, very good video. And the other thing we're, we're continuing to think about long term, we want to come back when this uh, situation is over. We, we have you know, spent four years now. We want to carry on as soon as the situation uh, clears up. And so we're asking our sponsors to stay with us, and I think they will. Absolutely, because uh, nobody knows at this point. Uh, we know it's temporary. We know that it w- we will get back. But at this point, we don't know how long suspensions like this. And I imagine there are other uh, groups much like yours that are going through the same thing. We just don't know how long it's going to be. Well, it's changed everybody, you know. And for instance, uh, uh, my wife Joan is in care with, at a care home with Alzheimer's. I used to visit her frequently, but now uh, we've been advised we can visit once a day, or one visitor can. But because of my age, I don't dare go hmm. because I'm 85 and I'm in that group that is very susceptible. So I have to rely on the staff at the care home, and I know they're very, very good. And I'm free to phone and find out how she is, which I do. But um, a lot of things are curtailed, and I'm, I'm like everybody else now. I'm staying home, and I'm going walking and doing things like that. Yeah, exactly. You do what you can to, to keep your mental yes. health and, and to deal with this. Uh, yes. I'm sorry to hear about the fact that, that you can't visit Joan. Are you able to call her, or you have to now rely on staff? Well, she would not be able to understand uh, right. a telephone conversation no more than a, a, a conversation in person. I don't even know if she still recognizes me, but that's one of the one of the factors of uh, Alzheimer's. It's a, a terrible disease, as most people know. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, George, again, thank you so much. What can people do as far as the, the drivers, the volunteer drivers will be suspended until further notice? Is there anything people can do? Like you said, you want to make sure the sponsors stay around and that this comes back at some point. But what else? Well, we would like to, uh, the public to continue to support us if they don't mind. Uh, we're at, uh, our website is uh, volunteercancerdrivers.ca, and a lot of people do donate online, so we would appreciate the continuation of that. And also, if I have a moment, I'd like to, to uh, give credit to the local newspapers who have helped us so much uh, for the last four years, like the Surrey News Leader, uh, the Peace Arts News, Langley Advanced Times, Tri-City News, North Shore News, Maple Ridge News, CKNW, Global. It's just been fantastic. You know, we, we have to get this message out to the people, and it has worked so well. And your show today really helps us a lot as well. All right. Well, I'm so glad you were available and you could chat with us today. We'll leave it there, George. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe.